Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. This will be our third sermon out of this passage. Um, again, the shortest uh, chapter in 1 Corinthians, but the most important one, right? Uh, because Corinth was messy. Of all the churches Paul ministered to, Corinth is really messed up. And so are you. Just kidding. So we've been talking about uh, the title of this series, Church, A Mess Worth Making, that we have a lot of problems. Christianity has a lot of problems. The church and how we function in culture. And this can be a very helpful letter to show us how to grow in the midst of our brokenness. And this chapter the most. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is explaining love. Uh, the first uh, the first point we made, uh, the first sermon, was that love needs to be behind every motive, right? That you can't measure all your motives, but if you do things purely for yourself or for selfish gain, Paul says that's like a, a clanging symbol. I don't know anyone that really loves the clanging symbol. I mean, if any of you play that in high school, I mean, that's, that's a hard instrument, you know? That's just a... Uh, that's what we're like when we try to help people without love, right? The second time we, uh, series of the sermon we looked at was the 15 characteristics of love. That's not an exhaustive list, but the real point we were getting at was for Corinth, they needed to hear these 15 action verbs. They were verbs of, of a description showing what love looks like. That when you love somebody, they will know it. Right? It's not just a thought you're having. Love is something you feel. It changes you. It reaches out to you. And this morning, uh, probably not the most important of the three, but possibly, that love never ends, right? That love is something that when everything else passes away, love will be present in heaven. And for the Corinthians, what Paul is reminding us is they were really after these spiritual gifts. They wanted, starting in chapter 12, Paul's explaining, they wanted to be great at maybe speaking in tongues or prophesying or knowledge. All things which existed, I don't know how it all worked, but what Paul was mostly concerned with was they were after those things not for the right reasons. And so our carryover for, the, for this morning will be, what things are you trying to pursue religiously, yet without love? I want that to be the question rolling through the back of your mind as we pursue this discussion this morning. So read with me now in 1 Corinthians 3. We'll look at verses 8 to 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let us pray. Father, you are defined by love. And it is so overwhelming that we really, even this, this side of heaven can barely grasp it like a mirror dimly. But through your spirit and through your scripture, we pray this morning, we would understand your love more than ever. And that would propel us, Lord, to love you and to respond by loving our neighbors as ourselves. Amen. 
So we're looking again at this idea of, of the Corinthians having great things, but maybe not understanding their purpose and getting kind of off focus. And I, and I was thinking, what, where is, I do this every week. What in our culture is like that? And it came to me, Little League. Right? Little League. We've all been at Little League when you have like the person yelling, right? And you're like, calm down, they're just kids. And then you find yourself yelling. Um, it, Coleman uh, played Little League in, at, at the YMCA in Edmond, and there was this coach on another team, and he was a yeller. I mean, he yelled, right? And it was really uncomfortable until we had him as our coach. Um, the next year, he was our coach, and he was a yeller. But we realized he really doesn't yell at the student, at the players at all. He's just excited. He just yells. It's probably how I preach, right? You just yell the whole thing. Maybe people will listen. In fact, one of the things he would yell that I love is this. Uh, in Little League, the pitching is really bad, especially early on. And so astute coaches will, tell, will coach their players to just stand there and take the pitches. You know, get a free walk. Hey, not this guy. He said, be a hitter. You're a hitter. Swing at that ball. I don't care. And he coached our guys to just swing away, no matter how bad the pitch was. Because we're here to play baseball. And he was right. There was nothing worse than watching a team like get a run rule and not one thing was swung at. They just, our pitcher was, we happened to bring in our guy that wasn't the greatest and missed the plate every time. And they just walk, walk, walk. It's like, why are we here? So this coach reminded us, here's why we're here, to be a hitter. And I think in those moments, and, and you can extrapolate that to yelling, right? Uh, you realize we're doing Little League to teach what? Teamwork, mechanics, but mostly, right? How do these kids, these boys want to swing the bat? Okay, what's the purpose? Corinth, the Corinthians had gotten off their purpose. They, they liked the things that they were after, but they forgot why they were trying to have these gifts and why they were seeking them. And, and for us, we do the same. We, we talk a lot about religion and our, and our faith, but sometimes love is nowhere in the mix. And what, we see, what Paul is showing us in this chapter is absent from love, everything you do is you, almost useless. Conversely, when love is flowing through your life, everything you do is enriched. And for, for Paul, he's saying this is because when you get to heaven, love is the one thing that will remain. Okay? And what that means, we're going to hopefully unpack a little bit this morning, but here's what we know for sure. The more it breaks into your present life, the more you will be happy, the more you'll resemble Christ, and the more fluid and, and um, full you will be. So how do we bring love, which will never end, into our present life? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And Paul begins by talking about heaven. He doesn't ever say it in the passage, but right off the bat, verse 8, he says, love never ends. And he's implying something. He's implying there is a future, right? There is a goal. There's a place that we are going. And, and, and when you're there, love will remain. And he's all the same, at the very same time, he's implying and reminding us these other things are temporary. They're good and they're important, but they're temporary. But in heaven, love will remain. Um, heaven. What do you think of heaven? Our culture doesn't know what to do with heaven. I think we either ignore it completely, and I'm talking Christian culture. We either ignore it completely, or it's this kind of really depressing cloud, a lot of clouds, and lots of musical instruments like harps, 
And maybe wings are thrown in on some people. It's really, we're really not sure what to do with heaven. And yet the scriptures are, uh, when they do talk about heaven, somewhat clear on, on some things we need to remember. And I want to talk about it just for a moment as we move into this discussion. Uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 5, describes heaven. And it's the, John is the one who writes Revelation. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Think about an ocean in ancient times. You, you had no idea what was beyond it. Right? It, it was so vast. And that's where we are. After the fall, we can't see God. We can't see heaven. But we know he's there. We know it exists. We're just not sure what that looks like. And John is describing a time where that is removed. And heaven comes close. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And so, Paul, as he's writing 1 Corinthians 13, has this view of heaven in mind. And he's really talking to this church, saying, Is this what you're waiting for? Is this what you're longing for, heaven? And and there are three things I want to describe about heaven just to kind of get it in our mind as we move into this discussion. One is God will wipe away all your tears. That's probably the best news of heaven, right? Like, there's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. There's no more disease. There's no more, you know, Tolkien gets the line, all all things sad will be made untrue. Probably is coming from this scripture. Everything you can think of that would be down or depressing or sad is removed in heaven. So that's beautiful. But secondly, there's the positive. That's, I don't want to call that a negative, but that's the removal of all the negative things. But you're not just neutral, right? He says all things will be made brand new. It'll be beautiful. It'll be glorious. Um, sometimes I think we read that and we think it means like almost abstract. Like, I won't understand what to do with things, right? That's not how it's going to be. Um, I had a professor who, uh, who said, God does not make junk, and he doesn't junk what he made. So the God who made earth, as beautiful as it is, though now it's marred after the fall, he's not going to just start over with like different objects. and right? It's going to have some resemblance. And we're going to know what to do with things. Uh, here's, a, here's an illustration that's not the greatest. Just bear with me. The CREC building. Raise your hand if you went out there. All you needed was one time to go out there. You're like, okay, I'm glad that's over. Across the street was what? The new one. And it's beautiful. And it's in a better place. There's a lady named Alice. I'm making her up. And she used to work at the old building. And she came over to the new building. And she walked in that first day. And you know she was like, look at my office and my new computer screen and the ceiling. And she was so excited. It was brand new. But it all had similar look, right? It just wasn't, the, and she looked out the window, and there was the old one where all those poor grace people were kind of like clawing through, walking out with our stuff. No, it's beautiful. See, they had remodeled it quite a few times, and it had a lot of really nice stuff, but nonetheless, it still wasn't new, right? So heaven is new. It's that fresh car smell. It's going to be, everything's going to be beautiful, but the best part about heaven that almost every movie about heaven misses 
especially, I, I, oh, I think the shack misses a little bit, but that's for another discussion, is this. When, when John says, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God will be their God. That the sense that you are finally with the one you've been worshiping. You don't walk in and go, who are you? You walk in and go, you are face to face with God, and it is nothing but beautiful and joy and, and love. And, and the fact that heaven is filled with love is a strange thing until you think about how culture and art tries to depict someone who's fallen in love. What do they do? They depict a person walking down the street with excitement, right? And the, and the sunshine is shinier than ever, and the birds are more beautiful than ever. What's the point? The point is when your heart is fully known and fully loved by God, and he is coursing through your veins, life is better. And that's where we're going, and that's what drives us. And that's what Paul is telling you. All these other things are passing away, but here's where you're going. And it's true, and it's real. Uh, is that driving you? Um, years ago, I read the book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I don't think I picked up any of them. Um, but they're still good habits. One of the habits was begin with the end in mind. And that makes total sense, doesn't it? Successful people, presidents, most of them, uh, Supreme Court justices, whomever, they begin with an outcome, and then they work to get there, right? That's the goal. But most of those outcomes are still not heaven. The Christian begins with heaven as the goal. And so whatever your view of the future with God in heaven is, it has to drive you in some sense, right? There has to be a connection to your life, right? And that's what Paul's saying. Love, which we have fully in heaven, is in part now, and it should flow through everything we do. I, I, I tend to do three-point sermons, so the second point then is where are we now? That's as, be, that's as good as I'm going to do this morning on the, on the second point. The first one is heaven. The second one is now. Okay, there you go. That's what we're longing for, right? But what do we have now? Paul uses an illustration of childhood. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He is now, for our culture, stepped onto a sacred cow. He's making fun of childhood, it feels like. And nobody in our culture does that, least of all Disney, right? You cannot make fun of childhood. Peter Pan, you know, he's, the, he's awesome because he never grew up. Right? What's Paul talking about? Um, I'm going to argue with Paul for a moment. The goal is not to grow up fast. In fact, a lot of this excitement and recovery of childhood is important about imagination and creativity and, and love. Frederick, Frederick Buechner has a great line in one of his um, several, um, not a biography, a, it's an autobiography, but it's a memoir. Thank you. Thank you. This, I think it's called The Sacred Journey. But anyway, he says, childhood ends when time begins. And for him, that time began when his own father committed suicide. And he says, that's where I knew the year, the date, the time. And childhood had sort of an ending point. So that's, I mean, that's him writing that. You want to say, no, we want childhood to be beautiful and recovered. But Paul's point is not that. His point is, however... How many of you, if you had a, a, an eight-year-old that still acted two, would be excited? Right? In fact, when they're two, you say, I wish I could keep you at this age forever. You don't mean that. 
We all say it, but if they're eight and they still look two, you're going to call Dr. Smalley. So I've got a problem. This child isn't growing. We all love Peanuts and Linus. He's got his little, you know, he's got his little uh, blanket. That's great, but if it's really a high schooler doing that, you're going to be like, hey, put the blanket away. At least put it in your backpack. It's getting dirty. So Paul's point is this. If you take the objects of Christianity that have really good uses now, today, heaven's still away and we're here, and you treat them as if they're the ends of the, in and of themselves, they're not surrogates, they're not things pointing you to Christ and his love, but they're things in and of themselves that will lead to brokenness, that will lead to misuse of these things. Um, I saw a quote this week by Matthew Henry. Thanks, Doug. I'm going to go and give you a shout out. And it's Matthew Henry commenting on 1 Samuel, but he says this, It is common for those that have estranged themselves from the vitals of religion, think love, okay, to discover a great fondness for their rituals and external observances of it. For those that even deny the power of godliness, not only have, but even have an admiration of the form of godliness. In other words, it's very tempting to be, in some sense, separated from the vitals of religion, the love of God, known by God, knowing God, resting in Christ, all the things that you would put in that camp. And without that, still love the rituals of religion. And that would be the warning, I think, of this passage for us. Maybe you're not longing to speak in tongues. Maybe you are. Or prophesy. But sometimes we get so excited about parts of religion that we lose sight of the reality of it, that we're pointing to heaven and love. Is that something that you deal with? Is that something you're stuck in? Sometimes it might even be a hill you would die on. You know, some sort of thing. In, in RUF, we had, a, um, we had this rocket ship. This is only for the campus ministers. We never told the students this. And they would train us to preach the gospel and watch out for putting wings on the rocket ship. Because you put a wing on a rocket ship, it's going to crash. And there are two types. There's cultural wings and religious wings, right? Um, and and their, their point was, be careful not to get all about one thing like homeschooling or public schooling or Harry Potter or, you know, something. Like, I probably shouldn't have brought the shack. Uh, don't put that wing on the rocket ship. Because if you do, you'll lose the middle and it can crash. Okay, does that make sense? What wings are you putting on your faith? What things are giving you meaning in your life? that aren't vital to religion. It's not that those things don't matter, but sometimes we give them too much attention because we're not really walking in that loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. So Paul says, when I grew up, I left childish things behind. He doesn't mean he no longer cares about these gifts. He hasn't gone to heaven yet. But he's longing for the day when he sees his Savior face to face and these things are behind him, right? Okay. Third point, if we have points, the third one will be this, the hinge, okay? You have heaven, which we all want. You have now, which is these childish things that we have to kind of hold on to that are like rituals, uh, and yet we're supposed to grow, right? And Paul gives us another uh, metaphor. The first one is children. The next one is this one on mirrors, right? Verse 12, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Um, I tried to find 
on, on the internet an example of an old ancient mirror. There were debates as to when the mirrors were invented and by whom the Roman, uh, somewhere around 100, so around Paul's time or just after maybe the metal mirror with the glass, but anyway. Nonetheless, they all would agree that they were much more warped and messed up than our current mirrors. And I just started thinking about like how important self-knowledge is to us. And part of that comes from a mirror, right? Now we have photographs, too. Um, I mean, you, we take it pretty like When I ask you what you look like, think what you look like right now. Every one of you just got an image that, of yourself. And guess what? I've got news for you. Not one person in this room has ever actually seen yourself. Isn't that kind of strange Like when you start to think about that? I've only seen representations of myself. Uh, I remember as a child, I, maybe even recently, I uh, look in a mirror. Have you ever looked in the mirror and thought, I'm going to look back faster than my eyeballs? I'm going to look away. I'm going to look back. I'm going to try to catch my eyes still moving back. Can't do it. It's impossible. <laughs> so a mirror is a representation of you. And the problem with a mirror is you're always looking at yourself. You can't ever see what you look like when you're not looking at you, right? Well, we have photographs now. So there you have it. I can look at photos of myself. That's what I look like. Except... Um, you all have seen the famous painting of a pipe where the artist says, this is not a pipe. And his point is, this is not a real pipe. It's two-dimensional. It's a painting. Your brain is symbolizing, oh, that's one of those things called a pipe. So when you see photos of yourself, you think, there I am, because I'm told that's me, and that looks like the guy in the mirror that's always looking at himself. But it's just a photo. It's not real. You especially know this when you put on a few pounds, and you look at the old photo that you keep on Facebook, like, that's... That's the me I want to be, you know. Or maybe the lighting was different. Okay, what's the point? You don't know yourself as well as you think you do. Right? And Paul says, right now we see in a mirror dimly. But what does he say? Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. One of the problems we have with our own Christianity and our own faith is we evaluate it through the lens of how we feel and see ourselves. As if the chief definer of yourself is you. Isn't that kind of what our culture teaches? How do you feel? Um, I remember in Japan, we spent a year in Japan, 1998, uh, no children, and toward the end, there was a church planters conference like several hundred miles away, which in Japan's like a long way. And Emily didn't go, so I went to this conference. And it was all, anybody that was a missionary in Japan from any denomination, we were invited. We had tons of denominations and people that I'd never met from various countries ministering in Japan. And I had ridden with Japanese friends or acquaintances. I couldn't speak their language very well. And I was hungry, and I showed up. Now, real time out. One of the underlying questions as I, we, that whole year was, are we going to come back to Japan as career missionaries, Right? That's always going on. Well, when you go to a church planners conference, it's like this neon sign in the back of your head. We showed up to this conference, and I'm hungry, and I'm cranky, and we walk into the sign-up room. I see these people, and they just look foolish. I'm like, I will never be one of these guys. Like, this just looks, just get me through this weekend. I know. It sounds awful. I'm being vulnerable. Then we had a meal. We had a meal. We went into the room. It wasn't very good. We ate. I met this speaker, and talked, and then went back into the room for our first thing, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. These guys look great, and I might want to be a missionary. Like, 
Uh, and then I remember thinking, what just happened? A meal in the bathroom break? And now I want to be a missionary again? Like, wow. Our ability to assess ourselves is very, very poor. And for Paul, you'll, we talked about this recently, some, of the, uh, some guys, we were talking about the godlier people get, the less they value their own judgment of themselves. Right? And, 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 God, and Paul's saying, what matters to me is not, and he said it earlier in 1 Corinthians, what you think of me, or even what I think of me. What matters is what God thinks of me. In that last little line on verse 12, even as I have been fully known. Is God know you fully? Is that your self-image? Sometimes we overcomplicate things. Okay? So I'm going to do the third grade Christian story. Creation, everything was glorious. God knew you or your forefather. You, he knew God and they walked in the cool of the day. It was beautiful. Man sinned. God came around. Man says, we've got to hide. I'm naked and I'm ashamed. And they hide. Right? God promises a redeemer in Jesus. And Jesus came. Right? Now I want to take that garden scene for a minute. We do this a lot in different ways, but I want to distinguish between what's called guilt and shame. Guilt is the knowledge that you've done something wrong. Adam and Eve didn't go, Eve, Adam, we're naked. That's guilt, right? You're right, we sure are. That's not good, let's get clothes on. And they go find some fig leaves. And then God shows up, yeah, we're naked, we broke the rule. That's not what happened. They were ashamed. They saw themselves differently. They retreated into the cover of the garden, away from God. That's what shame does. Guilt tells you what you did wrong, and it's critical, you need it. Shame tells you you are wrong. Shame comes in in the form of our sinful fallen self and says, you are a liar. You didn't just lie. You are a liar. And our culture eats it up. right? The second someone did a, a, a criminal act, he's this. She's that. Not they did that. Do you hear the difference? What does God do? Love walks into the garden. Love sees them hiding. Love knows exactly what happened and says, what went on? And they have a conversation. And then love goes and finds animals, right? And probably the first deaths in the garden that we at least know of would be those animals that were killed and skinned for Adam and Eve. And even just this morning, meditating on that thought, Adam named those animals. And now he's wearing them as garments to protect him from his sin. And that's what your Savior has done. Your Savior, Jesus, loves you and has come to you and has covered you and you can now face God face to face, only dimly, but someday fully, right? But here's the difference. Paul says, right now, I know in part, but someday I will know fully as I am currently fully known. God knows you fully. There is not one thought you're going to have, one image of yourself that's shameful that you're going to get that God doesn't already know, and if you're in Christ, he's already covered you. So your job and my job is to quit believing that wrong self that you're trying to define yourself and believe the self God sees in Christ, the covered self. Because if you don't do that, love will never come. Um, do you have that view? Paul had this amazing view of heaven, this amazing view of God. In 2 Corinthians, he tells us he actually got to go there. 
2 Corinthians 12, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, another way of saying heaven, right? Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he, that is Paul, heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Paul is saying, I have experienced in the throne room, whether physically or in a, who knows how it all went down, it happened, and God knows how it went down, but it's real. And I now have a completely different worldview. I cannot get that image off my mind. So going back to Japan, um, Emily and I, uh, we're sitting down kind of wrestling with whether we should come back. And we're talking with a friend, uh, Jeff Thompson, who the Shilers know very, very well. And he said one of the most profound things to me. It had nothing really to do with whether we should go to Japan or not. But just in general, he just said, Ryan, I just want you to know something. If right now you could go into the throne room of God and see you the way God sees you, you would come back a changed person. God loves you. Do you believe that? Because if, if you do not grasp God's love for you, if you think he's tolerating you, or he loved you up until yesterday when you did that thing, the, the moment you deform it, you're looking in that mirror more dimly than you should, and you're seeing yourself wrongly, and you're going to act accordingly. But when you see yourself the way God sees you, you can't help but love other people. It's like the redemption of the story of the unmerciful servant. The reality is, if you walk into the throne of God and God forgives you your sins and you believe it, you're going to look for the guy. You're not going to just wait till he walks in front of you. You're going to go up to him, I forgive that debt. I forgive what you've done. And you're going to look for people to love and shower. But if you're not doing that, and your Christian life is stuck, I promise you, you're struggling to believe God loves you. You're, you're allowing images of yourself that culture's given you, that your family gave you, that you give yourself because you're sinful, you're allowing yourself to live out of those false realities and you're not resting in the way scriptures teach is true. You are fully known and that is love. So what do you do with that? Um, I think a lot of people get afraid. Well, if I do that, then you know, I'll just go sin. No, you won't. Because you go sin because you don't believe God loves you. Right? If you actually believe this gospel, you will bring more of your sins to God and confess them because He will listen and you know that. And then you will turn to other people and love them and be a person they can confess their sins to. And they can know. And your relationships will be enriched because you're not having to run around and prove yourself by some false image that you kind of think is in the mirror, whether it be through your kids or your career or your looks or your Facebook page. All the ways you try to tell the world you've got it together, when you have this relationship with Christ, you can finally get rid of those. Not that you have to get off Facebook, but it's no longer your identity. You don't have to get rid of good clothes, but they no longer define you. Does that make sense? Love defines you. Do you believe Jesus loves you? Do you believe God loves you in Christ? I hope that today, as we come to this meal in a few moments, and as we move off into this day and this week, you will freshly understand God's love for you, 100%. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, only you 
can remind us and convince us of the love that you have for us. Only you, through your supernatural presence, can open our eyes to the reality of your mercy and grace and joy. That you know us fully, and yet you love us. Lord, we think we're doing somebody somewhere a favor by beating ourselves up, and we're not. We're just living out of unbelief. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to receive your love, that we would look at other people with love. Lord, if we're not patient, it's because we're not receiving your patience. If we're not kind, Lord, it's because we're not receiving your kindness. We don't believe it. And I pray we would repent of those sins today and this morning, knowing that you pursued us, you've died for us, you've covered us, you've united us to yourself, and we are engaged to be yours, and that every day now we would live longing for heaven, for your glory. Amen.